I remember when my first opportunity to go to India came up, I was excited about it. It was for a mission trip, but I was really nervous about flying over the ocean. Um, And so I went to India, and it was a great trip. It was a great mission trip. And flying back from India, I think that uh, we were flying back from London, back here to the States. Uh, It was at night, and there was a storm, and... (laughs) And that storm validated all of my fears I had of flying, especially over the ocean. I mean, we were in an airplane, and it felt like we were at a Six Flags ride. I, I, to this day, have never experienced uh, turbulence quite like that. Uh, We would be flying, and then the plane would just drop. I mean, like the Texas cliffhanger or the Superman ride, just whoo. I have no idea how far we dropped. But it's really scary. And so I look outside. I mean, it's, it's obviously tumultuous. It's stormy. Uh, the plane is dropping. Uh, I look at the passengers around me, and they're very scared, and I'm pretty nervous here, and we're all saying our prayers. And then I noticed the stewardesses. And they were seated, buckled up, but they weren't a bit scared. And so I realized then I'm focused on the wrong thing. And whatever I'm focused on, my heart and mind is going to emulate. If I focus on the tumultuous uh, storm and the, and the winds, well, then that's going to, my heart will reflect that. If I focus on the wings that were just sh- shaking, looking like they were about to snap off, well, then my heart and mind would reflect that. If I focused on the fear that was around me, my heart and mind would reflect that. So I made a decision to focus on the stewardesses who knew more about the plane and know more about flights than any of us, and I had peace and I had calm. So every now and then I would get nervous, and then I would look at the stewardesses to see if they were nervous. They weren't nervous, so I thought to myself, it's going to be okay. And in the same way, I believe that a lot of people are afraid of life. And we're afraid of life and living in fear because we focus on the wrong things. If we focus on our past, then our heart and mind will reflect our past. And we'll be filled with shame and regret and despair and guilt. If we focus on all the circumstances that surround our present on a daily basis, then our heart and mind will reflect that. And we'll be filled with anxiety. If we focus on the future, on the unknown, then our heart and mind will be filled with fear. But if we focus on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who will begun that which he began in us, then our hearts and minds will be filled with peace and authority and purpose and boldness. As the disciples were in a boat with Jesus and the tumultuous winds and waves arose, they were focused on the boat, afraid it was going to break apart. They were focused on the waves, afraid they were going to overcome them. But instead, they looked at Jesus, and he was asleep. He was just fine. And we need to focus this morning on Christ. I wonder if throughout the week, if by default, your heart and mind and perspective have naturally gravitated to focusing on your past. And so you've been wallowing around this week with a great deal of guilt or regret or joylessness. Or I wonder if you are focused more on your present. And so your heart is filled with anxiety. Or I wonder if you are focused on your future. So your heart is filled with fear. Well, in Judges, and I ask you to open your Bible now to the book of Judges, we're going to take a case study from a man named Samson and take some life application lessons and remember to focus on Jesus. Remember to focus on our God. Remember to focus on the author and the perfecter of our faith. Because if we take our eyes off of Jesus, then the waters get real dangerous. Samson took his eyes off of his God, and it was extraordinarily costly. Now, 
I'm, have been spending a lot of time in, in the life of Samson this past week praying through it, really just trying to get into his heart and mind and praying for insight into Samson's heart and mind. Because I think in the past, I've just sort of glossed over the story of Samson. Maybe I've heard it so many times, it's become familiar. And so I've lost the true essence of what the Holy Spirit wants to communicate to us about the life of Samson. And I think in just glossing over the life of Samson, I've, I've, I've looked at it only on a surface level. And I just saw Samson as this like, just this bodybuilder type guy who, who had a problem with lust. And, and prostitutes got the best of him. But that's a real surface teaching of Samson. Because we see that Samson wasn't this guy just in his early 20s, you know, walking through town, you know, not wearing a shirt all ripped and long hair and braided and then seeing some prostitute that enticed him and he made a dumb decision with her. It was, it was so much deeper than that. Uh, we, we see that, that Samson judged Israel for 40, I mean, I'm sorry, for 20 years. He probably died about, about the age of 40. And we see that, that a lot of Samson's decisions that we look at and we think, how could somebody be so stupid? How could he be so foolish? We see that these decisions were actually the result of functioning out of a place of woundedness in his life. Samson simply functioned out of a place of woundedness, and it eventually caught up with him. And when it did caught up with him, he paid the price. Samson was cut down in the prime of his life. We see that throughout Scripture that the Spirit of God would come upon Samson because Samson was a judge, and we've been in a series on the book of Judges, and a judge isn't a guy, as we've talked about, that just dresses up in a black robe and sits behind a bench, and this day and age, a judge was more like a leader. It was more like a general, but it was a rogue general. He wasn't appointed to office. This was an interim period in the history of Israel uh, between the, the leadership of guys like Moses and Joshua, who led the people to possess the land, and leadership... Uh, from guys like uh, Samuel or Saul or David, the prophet or kings of Israel. This was the interim period of official leadership when God would simply raise up these rogue leaders in response to their cry because the, the, the book of Judges is very cyclical. There's a pattern, and the Holy Spirit wants, to, wants us to see this pattern. We, we know a couple of things from Scripture. Anytime God is extremely simple, He's being extremely clear. And also, any time that God is extremely repetitious, he's being emphatic. And the book of Judges is extremely repetitious in that God would bless his people, they would enjoy his blessings, they would get their eyes off of God, they would fall into bondage, they would cry out to God, he would raise up a deliverer or a judge. And the judge wouldn't have an official office, but they would just sort of uh, begin separating themselves from the pack because the anointing was upon them, the spirit of God was upon them, the leadership was about them. And the people would follow, and this leader would lead the people to freedom. And this was the cyclical pattern throughout the book of Judges. And so, once again, the people found themselves in bondage, and so once again they cried out to God, and so once again God raised up a judge. And then we see in this context, uh, in Judges chapter 13, the birth of Samson, who was a judge, along the lines of Gideon, who we looked at last week. They're really a study in opposites. Um, in Gideon's weakness, God made him strong, but in Samson's strength, uh, he became weak. Uh, Gideon was made strong in his weakness because he learned to rely upon God. Uh, Samson was made weak in his strength because he began to rely upon himself. Samson was cut down in his prime because he took his eyes off of Jesus. Now, we've all done that from time to time. 
But Samson developed a pattern of living with his eyes off of his God. And this pattern eventually caught up to him. He began living with such pride because God's grace tarried over Samson's life for so long that eventually Samson decided, I'm okay. You know, God's power hasn't left me yet. God's strength hasn't left me yet. I'm still okay. I'm still enjoying God's favor. I'm still enjoying God's blessings. I'm disregarding him. I'm living with my eyes not fixed upon him, and it hasn't caught up with me yet, so I'm still okay. But the only reason that Samson was okay is because God was incredibly merciful and gracious, but it will eventually catch up with all of us. We see the Spirit of God coming upon Samson, and he, I mean, he cut down a thousand Philistines who were oppressing the people of Israel with the jawbone of a donkey. A thousand men. He, uh, they, 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 they thought they had him trapped, and in the middle of the night, they, they, they had these gates locked, and they thought they had him trapped, and he chucked off these huge, enormous gates that weighed many, 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 many pounds, and he carried them both on his back with the post, and he set them up on a hill. On one occasion, he gathered together all these foxes, and he tied their tails together, and he put a torch in them, and he scattered them in order to, to, to just create incredible chaos amongst his, his enemy. And we have, a, we have a, mis, a misconception of Samson, that he was able to do this because he looked like Conan the Barbarian. But he didn't look like Conan the Barbarian. Otherwise, Delilah wouldn't have uh, asked him so many times, what is the source of your strength? If he looked like a bodybuilder, it would have been obvious. But I believe in reality, he looked like a normal guy. And that's why his strength was, was such a mystery. What is the source of your strength? And there's a misconception that the source of Samson's strength was in his hair. The source of his strength was not in his hair. His hair was simply a symbol of his strength. The source of his strength was the supernatural resurrection power of God that rested upon his life. The same power that flung the stars into infinite space came upon Samson and empowered him to, on one occasion, rip a lion apart as if it were a piece of paper. It was a supernatural, divine strength that came upon Samson, and his hair was simply a symbol of that. But somewhere along the way, Samson began thinking that that strength came from in and of himself, and he persisted in functioning without looking at God and his life as a tragedy instead of an inspiration. The life of Samson is a, it's a tragedy of... of contradictions. His life is that of a paradox. He was bold before men and yet weak before women. The Spirit of God was upon him, and yet he consistently gave away to the appetites of his flesh. He was called upon by God to declare war upon his enemies, and yet he fell in love with his enemies. He fought the Lord's battles by day, and yet broke the Lord's commands by night. His name, Samson, actually means sunshine. And it speaks of a new dawn. It speaks of hope and it speaks of light. And yet his life ended in darkness because his eyes were gouged out by his enemies. Samson developed a pattern. He developed a habit of living without his eyes, fixated upon God, and it cost him. Samson's birth was supernatural. It was a response to prayer. And uh, Samson has the honor of 
shared with only one other in the Old Testament in which was birth was foretold by angels. In fact, the angel of the Lord, it was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ himself who met with Samson's parents and said, you're going to have a son and he's going to be a deliverer. And this angel of the Lord gave his parents very clear instruction in relation to Samson. He's going to be a Nazarite. He's going to be set apart. It simply means he's going to be consecrated. He's going to be different. He's going to honor me. People are going to look at Samson and they're going to know that he's different. And one of the ways they're going to know that he's different, that he's set apart, that he's consecrated, is that he's not to drink from the fruit of the vine. He's not to drink wine his entire life. Another way that people are going to know that he's set apart, that he's different, that he's consecrated, that he's holy, that he's pure, that he's a man of God, is that no razor is to touch his hair. Now, again, was the strength in his hair that he had braided in seven locks? No, that was simply a symbol that he was set apart and consecrated so that the spirit of God, the power of God came upon him. And so we see that Samson was gifted by God and, like so many today, began placing confidence in those gifts rather than in the giver of the gifts. And God help us if we think we can do anything. God help us if we think that we can even fold a bulletin and hand it out to somebody without the Spirit of God. It doesn't matter how God has gifted us. We can never take our eyes off of Christ who gave us those gifts and remain utterly dependent upon Him. We see that Samson did begin living with his eyes not fixated upon God, and we see that it it, it began resulting in some real casual behavior in in this Nazarite. First of all, he began dishonoring his parents as a young man. He judged over all of Israel for about 20 years, but at the offset of his leadership, we see that he dishonored his parents. Look with me, if you would, at Judges chapter 14. Judges chapter 14, verse 1. Let's pray first. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that your Holy Spirit would take your word and create faith and build faith in our hearts and minds. Take your word and create a desire for you, Lord, because a desire for you, a hunger and thirst for you is a real gift that sometimes we can even take for granted. Lord, take your word and give us a real um, disconnect from the world with it. Take your word and, and anoint us deeply so that people will look at us and see that we are set apart and we are different. Take your word, Lord, and give us a passion to stay fixated and focused upon you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Samson took his eyes off of God, and it, first of all, resulted in him dishonoring his parents. You think, well, that doesn't sound like a big deal. That's an enormous deal. Let's look, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, he's not supposed to be fraternizing with the enemy, right? The Philistines are the enemy. The Philistines are the ones who are oppressing uh, his people. Philistines, that's, uh, remember David and Goliath? Goliath was of the Philistines. They're enemies, they're arch enemies. And he tells his parents, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now go get her for me as my wife. He's, I mean, first of all, look how he's talking to his parents. Look how he's just telling them what to do. You can already tell that he's got a pride problem. 
His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all of our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. You can already tell, can't you, that Samson's hot-headed. He doesn't have a spirit of humility. She's the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord. How, how can this be from the Lord if, he's, if, he's, if his heart is bent on destruction? How can this be from the Lord? This is a mysterious verse I've read over and just prayed for wisdom on this. Let, let me read it again. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. Again, how could this be from the, world, from, from the Lord if this Philistine woman was going to result in a lot of pain in Samson's life? How could this have been from the Lord if it would result in ultimate destruction, if it would, if it would instigate a pattern that Samson would be in his entire life? How, how, how could this be from the Lord if God's word says in other places, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers? And the answer to that is this. God does not cause all of the pain that comes into our life. But God does cause all of the pain that comes into our life to work together for his good and his glory and his will if we entrust it to him. We look around at a lot of our decisions, and they are simply not the will of God, because God's will will never contradict God's word. Never. But when we entrust those mistakes to the Lord, He takes them and He orchestrates them into His sovereign plan to bring about His glory and even our deepest good. So all of that to say once again, God does not cause all of the pain God does not will all of the pain that comes into our life. It simply is not the case. There are things that occur in our life that are so inconsistent with the will of God and the word of God that that we cannot say that God caused that. But God does cause all things to work together for the good that we entrust into him. And so just let me say this to those of you who are single, uh, since... uh, We're taking principles from the life of Samson. God does not will you to date an unbeliever. God does not will you to be in a relationship with somebody who is not a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. It is simply not in God's will. It doesn't matter how, as Samson noticed about the Philistine, how beautiful she was. It doesn't matter how how, how much connection there is. It doesn't matter how much chemistry. It doesn't matter how well y'all get along. If she is not a believer, that is not God's will. And you would be so, not only settling for second best, you would be causing an incredible amount of pain to come into your life. Because if you're unequally yoked with a non-believer or even unequally yoked with a believer who doesn't have the same passion for Jesus Christ that you have, It doesn't even mean don't simply be unequally yoked with a non-believer. Don't be unequally yoked with somebody who calls themselves a Christian who is not walking the walk and following Christ and being a leader in Christ and serving Christ. Don't be unequally yoked with a non-believer or a fake believer or a lukewarm believer or a backslidden believer. Don't be unequally yoked with a non-believer. It will cause incredible pain in your life. You're going to want to tithe one day if you want to follow Christ, and they're going to scoff at the idea of giving money. We can't afford that. 
You're going to want to pray, and they're going to disregard prayer or even laugh at prayer. You're going to want to raise your kids up in church. They're going to want to sleep in on Sunday morning. You're going to want to grow closer together, and, and, and they're not going to want anything to do with God. And that relationship will have a wedge, and that wedge will be the most important thing in your life that you should have been sharing. But he disregarded his parents. He dishonored his parents. He forgot a command that God gave through Moses. The only command, by the way, of the Ten Commandments that's accompanied by a promise. The only command that's accompanied by a promise. Honor your mother and father, and you will have long life. And Samson dishonored his mother and father. And it created a chain reaction that would ultimately result in his demise, and he would be killed about 20 years after this. And it should have been the prime of his life. He should have had many more years of leadership. His story should have been that of an inspiration rather than a tragedy. And it can be traced back says he simply dishonored his parents. You say, but what if my parents aren't worthy of honor? What if my parents are very dishonorable for whatever reason? You know, it doesn't say honor your parents and give them the honor that they are due. It simply says honor them. Even if they don't deserve honor, absolutely. You honor them. Well, how can I honor them if they've not been honorable in my life? You honor them by honoring the Lord. And in honoring the Lord, you show them respect. Now, there's some wisdom involved. And there may be times that, that you work out boundaries in terms of your relationship. If a parent has not lived honorably, but you still honor them. And there's a promise associated with that. And that promise is that God will bless you with long life. Samson was not focused on God, so he dishonored his parents. Secondly, Samson was not focused on God, so he defiled his purity. Look at verse 2 of chapter 14. Or, I'm sorry, verse 5. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. And as they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly, suddenly a young lion came upon him. Where was Samson? Samson was approaching the vineyards of Timnah. What's in the vineyards? Well, wine's in the vineyards. But don't you remember, he's a Nazarite. He's not supposed to cut his hair because he's distinct. He's set apart. And not only that, he's not supposed to drink wine. And yet he's in the vineyards. Just a little wine? It doesn't seem like a big deal, does it? It doesn't. But that's the nature of sin. Sin never comes into our life like a roaring lion. Sin always comes into our life like an innocent little kitten. And just a little bit here sets Samson on a slippery slope. He's in the vineyards. What's the big deal about that again? Because he's supposed to be a Nazarite. He's supposed to be set apart. He's supposed to be unique. He's supposed to be different. That's supposed to be an indication that he's a man of God, that there's something different about him. And I wonder, are you distinct in this world? Is there a distinction about you? Is there a difference about you? Are you set apart? Or do you take your distinction about being a follower of Jesus Christ casually? What makes a Christian distinct today? Well, a few things make a Christian distinct. One thing is the Holy Spirit's within us. Do you take that lightly? Or do you make it a point to be spirit-filled every day? Do you embrace that distinction? Or do you sort of uh, look lightly upon that distinction of being filled with the Holy Spirit? What else makes us distinct today? 
Well, followers of Jesus Christ are distinct. We're, we're distinct because we assemble together in the, with the believers like we're, like we're doing now. Do you take that distinction lightly? Or do you take it, is there a weight to it? And when, 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 when the saints assemble, you assemble with the saints. Anytime, I've mentioned before, but anytime I'm, I'm on vacation, I do my absolute very best to show up with, this, with the saints. I don't care if it's a big church, if it's a small church. I, just, I have to be around the saints on a Sunday morning. Because that's part of our distinction. We are people of the book. We are to abide with Christ. It's a relationship. Every day we are to, to open our Bible and pray and, and read the word and have our quiet time, have our daily devotional. That's, that's a distinction. That's something that sets us apart. That's something that fosters our anointing. Do we take that lightly? Or is there a weight with these distinctions, with, these, with this abiding? We read in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, that the saints knew each other. They broke bread together. They fellowshiped together. They prayed together. They know how specifically to pray together because they did life together. That's a distinction. We walk together, not just in the assembly, but also in community. Do you take that distinction lightly? Samson took his distinction lightly, and it would eventually cost him. Not at first. At first it doesn't cost us. And that's why we, we began uh, taking our distinction more and more lightly because we think it's no big deal, but eventually it catches up. The third consequence of Samson taking his eyes off of God was that it divided his purpose. Chapter 14, verse 14. So Samson, he's supposed to be waging war against the Philistines. He falls in love with a Philistine woman. So what's he doing? I mean, he's, he's mixing it up with his future in-laws. What a contrast. He's mixing it up with his future Philistine in-laws, getting to know her wedding party. She's getting to know his wedding party. They're all together. They're, they're drinking wine together. Again, there's just nothing distinctive about him. He's mixing it up with his future in-laws that he's supposed to be waging war against. And then he gives him a riddle. And we know from Samson, he has, a, he has a way with words. And he was the kind of guy, his name meant sunrise or sunshine. And, and I believe, no doubt, he lived up to that name. I think he was probably a very extroverted uh, personality. He was choleric. He was, he was sanguine. He was extroverted. He was bigger than life. He would come into a room and, and his presence would just fill the atmosphere. He had a way with words. He joked with people a lot. And in the midst of this wedding party, he said, I've got a riddle for you. And if you can answer it, well, then I'll give you 30 basically articles of clothing. And if you can't, then you give me 30 articles of clothing. And so the Philistine future in-laws that he's mixing it up with says, okay, what is your riddle? And he gives them a riddle in relation to a lion that he recently killed and honey that eventually uh, some bees that made a hive in the lion's corpse and, and he ate honey out of that. And so he gives them a riddle. Nobody knew about this, but then he gives them a riddle. What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Right? The, the, the riddle is out of the eater, something to eat which was the line, but he didn't tell them the answer. Out of the strong, something sweet, which was the honey, but again, he didn't tell them the answer. And he, he was making jokes. He was taking his calling lightly. His purpose was divided. He's living for himself. He's disregarding his calling to wage war on his enemy. And he's making an entire joke about it. 
Well, the Philistines, you can go back and read the story, they couldn't figure out the riddle, but they weren't going to be one-upped. And now this is really just a matter of pride between a bunch of extraordinarily inflated egos. So they go up to Samson's future bride. They're currently engaged. They go up to the bride, and they basically talk her into finding out what the secret of this riddle is. So the bride goes to Samson, and she says, tell me the secret. And he says, I haven't even told my parents. And do you want to know what she does? She turns on the waterworks. She begins crying. She begins saying, you don't love me. And he's manipulated. And he gives her the answer. She goes and tells her family. They come and tell Samson the riddle. And it ticks him off. And now it's not about, it's not about delivering God's people. It's not about God's honor. It's about his honor. It's about his pride. It's about his ego. So he goes and he kills 30 Philistines. He takes their clothes and he says, there's your price. Whose battle is he fighting? Is he fighting for the freedom of his people? Is he fighting for the honor and the praise of God? Or is he fighting for his own pride? Is he fighting for his own ego? You see what happens when we begin just subtly walking outside of our distinction? When we take our eyes off of God and we just slightly begin walking outside of our distinction? Our vision is no longer singular, it's no longer focused, it's no longer about the glory of Christ. We're no longer living for the, for the heart of Christ or for the pleasure of Christ. Yes, we are kind of, it looks like who we are, maybe we are sometimes, most of the time, but our pride is also involved and we don't even know our own heart. It might look like we're being a deliverer, but we're really just defending our own ego and pride. And this was Samson the deliverer. He was sort of delivering the people, but he was mostly just fighting for his pride, defending his ego. So he goes back to his hometown. And his father-in-law gives his bride-to-be to somebody in the wedding party to marry. Now, don't you think that's going to really do something to your ego? And this is going to set Samson on fire. And he goes back to give a gift to his wife, and his future father-in-law that would now not be his father-in-law said, well, sorry, I've already... Um, I've, uh, I've given her away. But here, take her younger sister. She's better looking, right? That's what he said. Samson's infuriated. So he wreaks incredible havoc, incredible chaos amongst the Philistines. But again, whose battle is he fighting? God's? God's glory or his own glory? God's name or his own name? His people's freedom or his own ego? And this is what sin does. Samson just began just messing around with sin just a little bit. But it resulted in a divided heart, where it wasn't championing the honor of God, the glory of God. Oh, contrast Samson's heart and Samson's passion for that of Moses. Do you remember Moses on the mountain crying out before God? God, if you don't go with us, then we don't want to go. We don't want any blessings without your presence. God, if you don't, if you don't deliver your people, if you don't bless your people... Well, then, how, how are the nations of the world going to perceive you? See what Moses' passion was? How are people going to perceive you, God? That wasn't Samson's heart at all. Samson was just driven by his pride and ego. Partly deliverer, but partly driven by his ego. This is what sin does. It divides our purpose. So, in response to Samson's response... The Philistines killed that woman and her dad. In response to that, 
Samson kills about a thousand of them, and the fight is on. The fourth consequence of um, taking our eyes off of God is that we begin deferring to our pain. Another way to say that is that we begin functioning out of our woundedness. So Samson just, he began walking outside of his distinction. A little fruit of the vine, a little wine, no big deal. I have a relationship with a non-believer, no big deal. It might be something different for you. It might be just totally neglecting your daily time with the Lord. It, it might be a little lust. It might be a little whatever. But we're walking outside of our distinction. And the consequence of that is that not only that our heart begins uh, becoming divided so that we're sort of living for God, but mostly living for ourselves, but trying to mask it as the same on the outside. But another consequence of that is that we eventually begin functioning out of our area of woundedness. Samson's heart was a gaping wound. And so he's messing around with prostitutes. And then he finally falls in love with one. Her name is Delilah. And he truly falls in love with her. Why is he messing around with prostitutes to begin with? Because she's functioning out of a place of woundedness. And then he falls in love with this girl. How how does he fall in love with a non-believer again? How does he make the same mistake again? Because he's functioning out of a place of woundedness. It's okay to be wounded in life. It's okay. But we have to take those wounds to Christ. And we have to entrust Christ to heal them. And we have to surrender our lives to Jesus. And we have to begin walking in unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. And then the Lord will take our wounds and he'll make them our place of healing and anointing and ministry to comfort others. That's what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Comfort others with the same comfort in which you've been comforted. It's okay to be in a place where you need to be comforted by God. That's your future ministry. The only, the only real danger in life is not being wounded, as Samson was wounded, as we've all been wounded. The only real danger in life is, 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 is not people saying slanderous things about us or doing harmful things to us. The only real danger in life is not responding like Jesus Christ, with prayer, with love, with forgiveness, with blessing. That's the healing balm. That's the medicine that's going to ensure that our heart heals properly. And if our heart doesn't heal properly, what doesn't heal will eventually kill us because we will begin functioning out of that place of woundedness. And it will catch up with us and unleash a a, a fury of consequences upon our relationship with God, our testimony, our lives, our families. What we don't entrust to Christ to heal will eventually kill But the way that Christ heals our wounds so that they become a place of ministry, not a pattern of destruction in our life, the way that Christ heals our wounds is that we we forgive our offender, we love our offender, we bless our offender, we do good to them. Say, but I don't feel like doing that. I know. I don't either. But did you know that Jesus never commands our emotions? Did you know that? 
He never commands us to feel a certain way about our place of woundedness. He never commands us to feel a certain way about those who wounded us. He never commands our emotion. He only commands our will. Jesus said, bless those who curse you. That has nothing to do with how we feel. That's a conscious decision of the will. Bless those who curse you. Don't curse those who curse you. That's taking your eyes off of Jesus and looking at your offender. Because we will eventually emulate whatever we are focused on. If you're focused on Jesus, you'll emulate Jesus. If you're focused on your offender, you will act just like your offender. Bless those. Don't curse those who curse you. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who persecute you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and mistreat you. Bless, do good to, and pray. It has nothing to do with our emotions. Those are all conscious decisions of the will. They require enormous steps of faith. But as we step like Christ, then Christ will step in and heal our hearts. There's a saying, time heals all wounds. That's a lie. Don't believe it. Time doesn't heal all wounds. Time makes bitter. Time and healing in Christ heals all wounds, and that will become a point of ministry. So Samson finds himself in a pattern. What's he doing messing around with prostitutes? What's he doing yet? Once again, falling in love with a girl who is not a believer. What's he doing? He's functioning out of his woundedness. He's functioning out of pure hate. He, he, he's functioning out of resentment and bitterness. Just pure ego-driven. It's a far cry from the other, many other deliverers who are championing the glory of God and the freedom of their people. He's functioning out of his own woundedness. So look at how it cost him. Look how blinded it is. When we begin functioning out of our woundedness, know this. Samson would eventually have his eyes gouged out. It's going to cost him. But he was already blind. So the Philistines understand Samson's weakness. And know this, the enemy, you've got an enemy. He's a roaring lion. He knows your, he, he knows your weaknesses. And he attacks you at your place of deepest weakness and vulnerability. And that's why we have to be on guard. And we have to treat sin. We have to treat temptation. We have to treat the bitterness that's in our heart, which is sin. We have to treat sin the same way that sin desires to treat us. And that is ruthlessly. That is without mercy. We don't fraternize. We don't play with sin. We don't worry about hurting sin's feelings. The only way we treat sin is without mercy, ruthlessly. There are some battles that we are never intended to fight. Here's Samson fraternizing. He thinks he's got it under control because it hasn't caught up with him yet. But we should instead take a lesson from Joseph, who didn't fraternize with Potiphar's wife. When she hit on him, Joseph, who was a man of God himself, who was anointed with the calling and purpose himself, when Potiphar's wife was flirting with him and hitting on him, he didn't play around. He ran from her. He got out of there. There are some battles that we are not to fight. There are some battles that we are not to be stronger than. There are some battles we are just to be faster than, and we are to get out of there. But Samson thought that he was stronger than anything because he forgot that his strength wasn't his own strength. It was a gift from God. So the Philistines did the same thing to this girl that they did to the last girl. They understood Samson's pattern. They understood his weaknesses. And they said, find out the secret. So, I think that there's something to be gleaned here 
I think there's something to be gleaned here because it happened to Samson twice. He confided his weaknesses, his secrets, with girls who were bent on destruction toward him. I mean, it's a pattern, so I think it's, it's worth noting. Um, Samson was vulnerable around the wrong people. He should have been vulnerable around his people. So, she comes to him, verse 4, chapter 16. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we might tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels. That's about three to $5,000. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be subdued. You see the pattern? This just happened in his life. Samson answered her, if anyone ties me up with fresh bowstrings, he's testing her. He says something that's not true. So she does it. They tie him up with fresh bowstrings. He's asleep. His head is in her lap. And then she cries out, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. They bust in and he slays them. You would think he would learn from that, wouldn't you? And so again, I look at this and I say, how could he be so stupid? Honestly, I don't think he's that stupid. He's, remember how quick-witted he is, and he's got away with words, and he can strike up riddles? He's, I think he's a really intelligent guy. He's a bigger-than-life personality. I, I, I don't think he's just dumb. I believe that he knows that when he's sleeping in her lap, she's an assassin. And I think he knows that he's falling in love with somebody who's bent on his destruction. So why is he telling her these secrets? Because he's functioning out of woundedness. So, it happens again. She turns on the waterworks, just like his fiance did a, a few chapters ago. She turns on the waterworks. She's crying. She's saying, you don't really love me. And so he tells her something else that's not true. If you tie me with fresh rope, they do that when he falls asleep. Same thing happens. It happens again. If, if she turns on the waterworks, you don't love me. He tells her, uh, another secret, but, but look at how he's getting closer to the truth. If you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom, and he, now he's talking about his hair. So they do that, and she says, the Philistines are upon you, and he breaks them off, and she's saying, you don't love me, you don't trust me. Can you believe this? She's crying, you don't love me, you don't trust me. So he tells her the truth. And I believe that Samson's functioning out of, 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 out of a place of woundedness. I think he still loves his fiance that was given to another man. I think he still loves his fiance that was killed. I think he's, he's, he fell in love too easily because he's functioning out of woundedness. I think he's tr truly in love with Delilah. I don't think it's a lust thing. I think it's a love thing. But it's a misappropriated love because he got his eyes off of God. And I think that the reason now that he tells her the secret is in my hair, it's because he doesn't want to lose her also. I mean, this is truly the stuff of Greek tragedy. So he tells her the secret. They shave his head. She cries out, the Philistines are upon you. The Philistines bust in. 
And I think this is the saddest part in all of Scripture. Chapter 16, verse 20. Samson awoke from sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Isn't that tragic? He didn't know that he was functioning without the anointing. He didn't know that he was functioning without the power of God upon him. He did not know that the Lord had left him. Now, the Lord had left him, yes, but we read about Samson in Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith, and and we don't have time to talk about it. It says Samson and Gideon and all of these people, the great hall of faith. How was Samson in the great hall of faith? When we get to heaven, we will most certainly see Samson in heaven. I believe that you cannot lose your salvation. So if we cannot lose our salvation, then we can just live however we want to live? Absolutely not. We cannot lose our salvation, and yet there is so much to lose for taking our eyes off of Jesus. Let me say that again. We cannot lose our salvation, and yet there is so much to lose for taking our eyes off of Jesus. Samson took his eyes off of Jesus. And then verse 21. The Philistines seized him. They gouged out his eyes. I can hear it now with the hot irons just... And the screams, and trying to fight, and having no strength. And they put him in bronze shackles, and they set him to the grinding grain in the prison. What's he doing in the grinding grain? He's grinding for what? For grain, for what? For food, for the Philistines, the people he should be overthrowing and waging war against. He's grinding their food to nourish them so they can continue to oppress his people. And finally, the final consequence of taking our eyes off of Jesus, let me just go back and review this slippery slope. It began with something seemingly as simple as dishonoring his parents and then defiling his purity with something so simple and then dividing his purpose and then he began deferring to his pain. He was functioning out of a place of pain. And the final consequence was disgracing the praise and the glory of the God who empowered him. He disgraced the glory of God. Verse 21. Or verse 23. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate saying, our God delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. They thought that their God, Dagon, was stronger than Samson's God, Yahweh. And they were, they were ridiculing Samson, and they were ridiculing Samson's God. That would have been Moses' greatest nightmare right there. Moses would have rather had his eyes gouged out than bring disgrace upon the name of his God. No doubt about it. The Apostle Paul would rather have his eyes gouged out than bring disgrace upon the name of Jesus Christ. There's no doubt about it. Samson brought disgrace upon the name of God. And that's what will sneak up on us and catch us and blindside us if we persist in a lifestyle where we don't remain focused upon Jesus. There will eventually be just no distinction about us whatsoever. 
Psalm chapter 46, verse 10 says, Be still and know that I am God, and I will be exalted among the nations. And that is to be our heart cry, that God is exalted upon our nations. Not the name of Christ's disgrace, because there is absolutely no distinction about our life. So, we look at Samson's life, and it's a real tragedy. And yet, he's in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. Why is that? I mean, what did Samson do right? What noble came out of his heart and everything that we've studied about him? What pure and honorable and good and praiseworthy came out of Samson's heart and motives out of this entire case study? Well, I think it's there in the final moments of Samson's life. Samson dared to believe. He dared to believe that after a life like that, he dared to believe that God's unfailing love remained. And so Samson prayed. And by the way, this is the only prayer that I recall Samson ever praying. Now he's kind of weak enough like Gideon was, to walk in the strength of God for God's purposes and God's glory. Now he's kind of, he's finally weak enough to not be so hot-headed. He, he's weak enough to not be so divided. And, and is, is he championing God's glory or his own ego? He's, he's, he's weak enough for his heart to be humbled, conquered, and totally dependent upon God. And, and, and now in this place of incredible vulnerability where the, the, the Philistines, there's about 3,000 in this palace hall and they're on the roof and they're looking at the spectacle. What a spectacle it was. Have you ever seen a, like a stallion that was just graceful and beautiful running and, and then that same stallion with the broken leg that was just weak and wounded? I mean, isn't that sad? Samson was a stallion, and here he is with his eyes gouged out and his feet are in bronze and his blood down his face, and, and he's shackled, and, and he's walking, and, 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 and all of the Philistines are ridiculing him, and they're praising their god, Dagon, saying Dagon is more powerful than Samson's god, Yahweh. He's finally weak enough. He's finally vulnerable enough to be the true deliverer that he was born to be. But how could he? In this situation, how, how, how could he possibly bring God glory? How could he possibly deliver God's people? God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And when we get to a place where we are so weak, so vulnerable, so dependent upon the unfailing love of God, that we dare to cry out to God one more time, we will experience God like we never have before, and He will glorify Himself more through our consequences than our entire life. And I believe this next prayer is why Samson is in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, because now in his weakness and his vulnerability, Samson prayed under his breath, Oh God, Strengthen me one more time. 
And he told a little boy, he said, lead me by the pillars, please. And a little young boy leads him, and all the people are ridiculing him, and he puts his hands against the pillars, and he prays this prayer under his breath again, oh God, strengthen me one more time. And he pushes against the pillars, and the strength was restored, and the entire building collapsed. And scriptures tell us that Samson killed more Philistines in his death than in his life. Because he dared to believe in the unfailing love of God. So would you stand with me, please? Story's a tragedy. I, I really prayed through this a lot. And, and I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to communicate this story maybe in deeper terms than I have ever before read it. I've always just seen it as a guy who struggled with lust. But it was so much more. It's a guy that was functioning out of pride. It's a guy that was functioning without his eyes focused on God. It's a guy that was functioning out of a place of woundedness. And it's a guy whose, whose lifestyle eventually caught up with him. But it's a guy who also dared to believe that God could still be glorified, even where he is. So would you bow your heads with me? I wonder if you've lost your distinction. And I wonder if it's been a light thing to you. If, if you can relate with Samson and that you've got your eyes off of Jesus and, and you've been functioning with maybe uh, dishonoring parents or your eyes have been off of Jesus and you've been functioning outside of your distinction of what it is to be a basic follower of Jesus Christ. Or maybe you've been uh, functioning out of a place of woundedness and you need to heal properly. You need to, to, to release that wound to the Lord. The only way to heal properly is to, unlike Samson, Entrust justice to God. The gavel is not in your hands. Put the gavel in the hands of God. Yours is to love and to forgive. God's is to deal with your enemies. You need to entrust your hurt to the Lord. Maybe Jesus Christ is not glorified in your life. There is no lukewarm. There is no middle ground that we can safely coast. If you are not living to intentionally bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ, then like Samson, you'll get blindsided, and it's a matter of time before you bring dishonor to the name of Jesus. So maybe you've been functioning very basically outside of a distinction, the basics of Christian distinctions. And you just want to consecrate your life to Jesus Christ. A Nazarite. For a Nazarite, they were to be set apart. They were to be distinct. They were to be, to be different. And maybe you need to be recommit to being distinct, to being different. And if that's you, I would just like to pray for you. Would you raise your hand high and just let me pray for you? Father, you see these hands. Just leave your hands. You see these hands. Lord, we want to be distinct. We want to be fully consecrated. We want to be fully devoted to you. Because as D.L. Moody said, the world has yet to see what you could do through the person who was fully devoted to you. Lord, we surrender our lives to you. We surrender our wounds and our hurt to you. We surrender everything to you, God. Our lives are yours. We live for you. We don't live for our egos. We, we don't live for ourselves. We just want to live for the glory of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name.